Hey, greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. And one of the things I've always been an advocate for is getting more men and women who have served this country in uniform, good, strong, constitutional conservatives, to run for elected office. Because I think if we had more men and women that understood the oath to the support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America instead of lawyers— who don't on, have an oath to anything other than themselves, and especially the progressive socialists, and some of the establishment members of the GOP who have an oath to, well, their ideological agendas and themselves, or special interests, or even self-interest. And so I want to bring to you a super young man that uh, he raised his right hand, and he took that oath to support and defend the Constitution, same as I did, same as my dad did, same as my older brother, same as my nephew, same as my two son-in-laws. And he has served this country in uniform. Now he wants to continue his service to this great nation in a suit and tie up in Washington, D.C. Or, you know, Jim Jordan doesn't wear a coat, so maybe he can just ditch the, the jacket thing. But we are speaking with Joe Kent, and Joe Kent is running for Congressional District Number 3 in Washington State. And it's very important to me because my nephew right now is stationed up at Joint Base Lewis and McCord. But here's a little bit about Joe. At the age of 18, Joe Ken enlisted in the Army as an infantryman and earned his way into the Ranger Regiment and then Special Forces, the Oppresso Liber. Is their motto, liberate the oppressed, and I think that's what we need to do here in America. After 9-11, Joe volunteered at every opportunity to serve in combat. Because he's a warrior, and warrior moves to the sounds of the guns. He did this for over 20 years with 11 combat deployments. Joe intended to continue to serve our nation in hostile locations abroad until his world was turned upside down on January the 16th of 2019 when his wife, Shannon Kent, was killed fighting ISIS in Syria. At that moment, he knew he had to step away from putting himself in physical danger so he could be there for his two young sons. And that's one of the critical things. We have too many young sons that are losing their fathers. Fatherlessness is an important issue in the United States of America, and Joe understands that. Shannon was killed approximately one month after President Trump attempted attempted to pull our troops out of Syria because America had met its military objective. Joe moved back to the Pacific Northwest, beautiful area up there, to get his sons closer to parents and family. After living in Portland for a short time, and I think we can all understand why you live in Portland for a short time, unless you are Antifa anarchist, he realized that the far left had ruined that city and relocated to Yakult, uh, hopefully I said that right, Washington. He chose to live there because knowing that that district's people shared his traditional conservative values, and it would be an ideal environment to raise his sons. Joe voted for a young lady who was my former colleague, Representative Jamie Herrera Butler, to stand firm for his family and congressional districts. But she betrayed that trust, as you know, that Ms. Herrera Butler was one of those Republican members that voted to impeach President Trump. 
And in violating and betraying that trust, she made it clear that he needed to act decisively. In over 20 years of fighting on battlefields and through his wife's death, Joe knows what it feels like to be on the receiving end of failed policy. Joe feels that the GOP establishment is too self-absorbed to represent the will of the people they're supposed to represent. So Joe is volunteering now. He is raising his right hand once again, just as he did 22 years ago. And he is now the GOP nominee for Washington State's Congressional District Number 3. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Kent, welcome to the Steadfast and Lower Podcast. So much for having me on. It's great to be here. Uh, it's fantastic. So, you know, what did I miss about your background and, and your history and kind of get people to understand just the, the gist of some of the combat tours and deployments that you had as an infantryman, as a ranger, and also as a Green Beret? Yeah, I mean, you give a, a great introduction there. I really appreciate that. So uh, I had the opportunity and, and the privilege to serve, especially, you know, after 9-11, just like you did. We felt our nation's call was to go overseas and to fight. And so that gave me a lot of uh, perspective on how amazing this country is because I, got, because I got to serve with people that were from, you know, every single background. And we all rallied together underneath our flag to go fight for our country. And so that that just gave me a deep appreciation of just how special America truly is. And then seeing just the way that the rest of the world really lives and how privileged we are to live here. I knew America's worth fighting for, worth dying for. I was really frustrated after, you know, as the deployments drug on and just seeing that our establishment, our ruling class, they didn't really have a plan to let us win the war. There wasn't a clearly defined military objective. And really we were over there, you know, based on a lot of lies. We were letting other threats fester. There was, you know, all the failures of the Bush administration, the Obama administration. And then finally President Trump came on and brought, I think, a lot of clarity to uh, our foreign policy and then just to the direction our country was heading in. And so I was a pretty early on uh, Trump supporter, especially when he went after the Republican establishment on foreign policy. And then once he became commander in chief, he gave us the resources we needed to actually take out the enemy. And then he put that stipulation on it that once we achieved our military objectives, he was going to start getting us out of these conflicts. And, and ultimately, the way that the establishment pushed back on him cost my late wife and, and four other Americans uh, their lives. And so that really uh, inspired me to, to start speaking out on behalf of President Trump's foreign policy. I never thought it would lead me to this position right here, but uh, 2020 was a, a very trying time, and I think it, it really uh, shifted a lot of people's calculations on how we're going to go forward as a country. You know, one of the things that I've always been against uh, is the whole nation-building concept. You know, we cannot go in and try to create democratic institutions and try to get people to replicate us. There are, you know, some places they're never going to be Jeffersonian democracies. But when we do find the enemies of the United States of America or our allies in some cases, we need to be laser focused on them. I learned very early on in my military career, terrain-oriented operations and enemy-oriented operations. And I think too often we lose sight of going after the enemy and bringing them to their knees. And that really was the big thing that President Trump did. He said, "Okay, ISIS is a problem. Let's let's kill him. Let's find the the head of ISIS. Let's take him out. The the coups force of of Iran. Well, it's a designated terrorist organization. Well, who's the head of the coups force? Well, the U.N. says that he's not supposed to leave Iran. So he's in Iraq. So let's kill him. And so I think that we need to have that type of clarity. How many tours did you serve in Afghanistan? So I actually never went to Afghanistan. I did uh, 11 combat deployments total, did about uh, nine in Iraq, and then I was in Yemen a bit and, and some in Africa as well. Okay, so you had a lot of dealings with the uh, 
uh, what's it, the Boko Haram in Africa, maybe, and then in Yemen with the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. You know, right. how do you see, and you can do that juxtaposition and that comparison, how did you see the policies affect you and your employment uh, in the respective administration, being the Bush, Obama, and the Trump administration? Yeah, you know, under uh, President Bush, I think uh, because the war was new and, and the wounds of 9-11 were still healing, I think we gave the Bush administration uh, a lot of leeway. We just trusted them. You know, we marched into Iraq. We went into a couple of different other countries as well. Um, and so during the Bush administration, I, I really thought that we took our eye off the ball. I thought, hey, maybe there's a, a master plan somewhere. I'm just a lowly green brace sergeant. You know, what do I know? Um, maybe somebody has, has a greater plan why we're trying to build nations right now. But after a while, I just got really disenfranchised and thought that, hey, this is all just really to continue the military industrial complex uh, gaining here because these big, large scale operations just benefit like the military industrial complex. Um, there were some successes I think we had uh, away from the major battlefields in the global war on terror. Uh, some of the stuff we did in Yemen was a little effective against Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, but we always wanted to center everything on propping up some other government. Everything had to be done through this government that came with a big logistical tail to it in some form of a, a bunch of different military contracts when really a low profile, uh, smaller footprint, surgical special operations, you know, mm -hmm. just kind of terrorism mission probably would have been much more appropriate for the threat that we were facing at the time. So, you know, Trump was the one, I think, that really had that clarity. Um, and, and I think that's mostly just because both Bush and Obama were very establishment type of people. They were both career politicians uh, and they had a lot of folks whispering in their ears the different, you know, machinations and motivations of the political establishment. And Trump was just a complete outsider. He was a businessman. He came in and like you said, he was very blunt about it. Like ISIS controls that ground. ISIS, is they're, they're the bad guys. Go find them, go kill them. And then we're leaving. Same thing. Cost them so money. He wouldn't hear it from the experts that, you know, were probably telling Bush and Obama that Soleimani was way too important to take off the battlefield. Trump just simply said he's killing Americans. He's been killing Americans for a long time. Find mm -hmm. him and kill him. End of story, period. So that that clarity, I think, that's just basically ruthlessly America first. Like what is in the best interest of the American people? We need an executive branch and we need, you know, a Congress that's really just looking out for that. I think far too often we hear from Republicans and Democrats, and Ukraine's a great example, that we need to be making massive amounts of sacrifices for like the liberal order or some other lofty yeah. goal that doesn't directly affect America. No, we need our leaders in America to be looking out for Americans. Yeah, I think that when you look at the, uh, you know, Ukraine, here you have a country that's willing to fight, then allow them to go in and fight themselves and not get dragged down into this big conventional back and forth. Let's, let's talk about how important it is to have someone such as yourself to be in Congress, to be on a House Armed Services uh, Committee and talk about understanding what's going on on the battlefield. Because when I was in Congress and served on the Armed Services Committee, I found that most of the people on that committee, well, it's because they had a military installation or some defense contractor that was in their congressional district. And you're right. They were only seeking to serve the purposes of bringing more jobs to that military base or bringing more jobs to that defense contractor. What do you think you can bring to the table as a member of the House Armed Services Committee uh, in the position as a, as a U.S. congressman? 
thing I can bring ground level experience. I mean, there's a lot that we, we need a very robust and strong military that's ready to fight tonight. I think we're losing that under this administration. But what we really need is, is we need a military that's laser focused on that. We don't need them looking out for the best interests of a defense contractor. We don't need them becoming this, you know, the, the National Defense Authorization Act, just becoming this deposit and dumping grounds for so much different pork. You see that every single time that bill goes out because it's so massive, both sides of the aisle will stick special interest money in there that's really not going to support the the defense of the United States of America. So I think the ground level experience to really look these generals and, and a lot of the defense mm -hmm. officials in the eyes and say, hey, look, I know you guys don't need that. You need to be focused on this one very simple but very important mission, and that is closing with and destroying the enemy and keeping our country safe. And so I think right now, especially when you have more politically motivated operatives like with General Milley, with Secretary of Defense Austin, I think we need folks who understand just really how the, the sausage is made, I guess, for lack of a better term, yeah. um, that can really just start calling them out. And especially when it comes time for accountability, there's still been no account for what happened in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that's completely and totally unacceptable. We need guys like us who've been on the ground, who know that what, what happened with that evacuation at every level, the strategic level, all the way down to the tactical level, that people need to be held accountable for that. And, and there's no amount of, you know, I, I PowerPoint presentations that they can throw at us that are going to let them get off the hook. Yeah, 13 Marines, a sailor, and a soldier lost their lives, 13 total. Never be home because of that operational, strategic, and tactical debacle. $80 billion of equipment left there to be exploited by the Taliban. The entire Taliban leadership that we had taken off the battlefield, uh, thanks to Herculean efforts of men and women, they're right back in power. And no one's held accountable. A drone strike that we told went after the, the person that bombed it, uh, was responsible for the bomb of that gate, ended up being a family. So not just those things, but talk to us about what you would do. I think the biggest cancer in our military right now is the cultural Marxism that is there, the critical race theory that is there. How would you tackle that? How would you go and make that one of the linchpins of your uh, endeavors as a congressman? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I think it's just been a disgrace what this administration has done to the military. When you think about the military that Joe Biden inherited, it's the most battle-hardened military that our nation's ever had. Every other war we fought, we've had to draft a military, and then we demobilized it at the end of the war. The all-volunteer force that fought our wars, the global war on terror, these guys were extremely ready to go to war. This is all that this generation of soldiers has done. And then Austin comes in, Joe Biden comes in, and the first thing they say to this battle-hardened force is, we think, you know, half of you are secret, some kind of, like, extremists or white supremacists. We need to do this stand-down, and we need to start looking through all of your, you know, your Facebook posts to see if you supported the last president. Just a complete and total culture of, you know, of really having a political witch hunt, and that comes from the top down. And then you have folks like Millie and Austin, who are political operatives through and through. They start immediately genuflecting to this woke ideology as opposed to just pushing back on it and saying, look, this is this is the military. This is one of the probably, I, I would say, the most equal opportunity place that we have. Everybody, when they come in, is, is yeah. treated equally worthless, and then you're given the opportunity to <laughs> yeah. prove yourself. And that's really all anybody cares about at the end of the day, you know, until you get into the upper ranks of the Pentagon. But instead of doing that, they they didn't. They went along with this nonsense that there's so many, you know, extremists within the ranks. And so I, I think we're going to have to be really hard when it comes to the appropriations process, the NDAA that comes out every year. We're going to have to go through that with a, with a fine-tooth comb and just say, hey, 
if there's anything in here about you know critical race theory or whatever they're calling it this week, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to say no. We're not gonna fund any of these programs. Uh, the vaccine mandate, I think, is another huge one as well. I mean, yes. the the way that they wanted to purge the military of so-called extremists who didn't agree with Joe Biden's uh, political ideology that was going to be kind of time-consuming. I think they found the vaccine to be much more uh, effective, and so they just said, "Hey." You will either take this vaccine or you, or you won't, and then we'll kick you out of the military. And that's been sort of a soft purge they've had of you know folks that are traditionally the type of people that we want to stay in the military. And I, I think it's just had a catastrophic effect on readiness. I know guys in the special mm-hmm. operations field, you know, at 10, 15 years in, I mean, mm-hmm. the taxpayers spent millions of dollars training these guys. And a lot of them that I know would have gone to the 20-year mark and, and beyond, they're getting out right now just because of the culture coming down from the top, the vaccine mandates, how horrible things went in Afghanistan. And and we're looking at a complete, it, it boggles my mind too, because I, I retired from the military in, in 2018, uh, stopped serving the CIA in 2019 after my wife was killed. But it hasn't been that long, but just to see how much talent that we've absolutely hemorrhaged out of our military and how we are, we're, we're approaching that point where we're not ready to fight. So I, I think from the Armed Services Committee perspective and from Congress, we're going to have to get really hard on the military and we're going to have to potentially use the appropriations process as a means of holding them accountable. You know, you're in the House and you control the purse strings. And that's one of the key things that the Constitution does. It says that all matters of revenue, it has to, uh, you know, initiate and, and also finalize there in the House. So the power of the purse is incredible. You know, one of the things in 2011, when I was in Congress, I started the Guardian Fund. I'm sure you've heard about it to, like I say, recruit more military members, uh, conservatives and minorities. What message do you have? to our veterans out there to inspire them to do exactly what you are doing right now. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think it is on our generation of warriors to realize that our fight is not over. We, we thought that we were going to be able to just go volunteer and fight in our nation's wars, and that would be the, the final chapter. But unfortunately, that's that's not the, the trajectory that our nation's on right now. Our nation needs people who've worn our, our the uniform of our country that has that unity, that has that in their in the, their DNA to go and fight the enemy because we're facing challenges like we've never seen before. Our country is under attack from the inside, from these cultural Marxists, from the globalists uh, within our own ranks who want to just make America a country that is just a cog in the wheel of this globalist complex. And so I think veterans from you know whatever uh, background they have I think that they need to feel a second call to duty. And it doesn't have to be to to run for Congress or to run for Senate. It can really start at the local level. I mean, what the left has done is they've done a a really impressive job from an unconventional warfare perspective of taking over every single Mm. job that I think 10, 15 years ago, we would have said, that's not an important office. You know, what does what does a school board uh, official Mm -hmm. really do? What does the, the cemetery board, what do these guys even do? Well, they've taken over every single aspect of local government and they've just worked their way up. And so I think we've really got to start doing the exact same thing. So getting involved at any level, I think it's it's really important for veterans to start to, to start doing that right now because the country, they still need our leadership. Well, Joe, how can people follow your campaign to be the next member of Congress from the state of Washington's Congressional District number three? Yeah, please go to JoeKentForCongress.com. I've got links to all my social media on there. And uh, if folks feel like supporting us, we could really use it. I'm not taking any, any corporate PAC money. I'm up against the far left out here. So JoeKentForCongress.com is the place to do that. You know, the amazing thing, when you look at the state of Washington, uh, really, when you break it down by county, it is red all over the place. 
except for right. some very key strategic areas, namely King County, Seattle, and yep. Tacoma. And that's how the left has been so successful in going in and strategically looking at counties, major urban population centers, where you see the greatest amount of their failures. So my hat off to you. You know, the, uh, the CNN contributor by the name of Obidala said that we as constitutional conservatives, you know, the Republican Party is now becoming just a fascist white nationalist party. Let me tell you something. You're my brother warrior, and I want to thank you for what you're doing to step up. And any way that I can be a voice and of support in helping you to win, I will do that for you because it's so important, again, that we get more Army strong, more airborne, you know, that are up there jumping in behind the lines in Washington, D.C., and kicking some ass, taking some names, and restoring our republic. So God bless you, and thank you so much, Joe. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. God bless. You got it. God be with you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was future Congressman Joe Kent from the state of Washington, Congressional District Number 3, a warrior, someone that understands what it means to take the oath and be willing to make the last full measure of devotion to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. That's the measure of man or woman that we need to represent us so that we stay the greatest nation that the world has ever known. Before they burn it down